Hello, speaking of language listeners. We'd like to take a moment before this week's episode to remember our dear friend, Dan Gable, who passed away at the end of March after a 10-month battle with cancer. In addition to being the co-founder and frequent co-host of Speaking of Language, Dan spent 18 years working in technology at the Language Resource Center at Cornell. This podcast was something he wanted to do at the LRC for many years, and he was thrilled to finally get Speaking of Language off the ground in 2017. He loved podcasts in general and never turned down an opportunity to get in front of a microphone and speak in his trademark baritone. He was also a talented musician whose guitar melody carries the theme music you hear every week on our show. Today's guest, Sarah Mercer, talks about teacher well-being, and we think it's an ideal time to take in her message of practicing self-care and gratitude. Dan taught us to savor every moment, to find the silver linings, and to accept both the good and the bad in life. We dedicate this episode to Dan and are glad to continue Speaking of Language in his honor. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. Sarah Mercer discusses the importance of teacher well-being for effective language teaching and offers concrete steps for preventing burnout. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. I am excited to speak with Sarah Mercer today. Dr. Mercer is professor of foreign language teaching at the University of Graz in Austria, where she is also head of English language teaching methodology and deputy head of the Center for Teaching and Learning in Arts and Humanities. She gave a talk as part of the LRC speaker series titled The Secret Ingredient of Effective Language Teaching, teacher well-being, and we will extend our conversation about this topic today. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Sarah. Hi, Angelica. Thank you for having me. Before we dive into unveiling all sorts of secrets, can you please tell us a little bit about um, your background, your research, your work in, in language teacher education, language education? Um, my background is as a, as a language teacher myself, an EFL teacher working primarily in Austria. I've worked in some other places, but primarily here. Um, I did my PhD in applied linguistics in the UK, and that's where my kind of interest started. So I think I've always remained very close to the classroom, um, but I, I don't think I ever stopped being a teacher at heart. So you know, the, the majority of my work now is um, focusing on research, and I'm more involved in teacher education. I don't think I ever stopped being a teacher. I think that's where my, my, my heart really lies. Yeah. So that kind of explains a little bit of my interest, and we'll perhaps come back to that later. So, um, yes, yeah, so during my PhD, I was interested in learner psychology. So that's kind of how it started. So I was interested in understanding what makes learners tick, um, how they engage with things, their motivation, their sense of self, um, their mindsets, attributions, those kinds of things, the beliefs that they hold, the emotions they experience. So I started looking at learners, and then, for those who are interested, I, I, I developed an interest in complexity theory. Mm-hmm. And complexity theory focuses more, and that actually makes it sound very detached from the classroom, and actually it is not. So in my view, complexity theory actually resonates with many teachers because it actually doesn't simplify or oversimplify or fragment the classroom. Yeah. And it looks it in all its messiness and all its complexity. And the more I started to look at that, the more I realized that the teacher is kind of the hub of all the relationships and all the psychology of the classroom. Huh. 
And so then I started to look a little bit more at what was going on in respect to teacher psychology and language education. And there was very, very little. So most of, there was a, there was a big slug of research looking at teacher identities and teacher cognitions, but that was pretty much the extent of it. And if you compare with what has been done in respect to learner psychology, there was a huge imbalance in mm. the kind of research that was being done. And so I just started getting interested more in teacher psychology and thinking, well, my God, you know, these teachers are so important to what happens in the classroom. Yeah. Psychology pretty much dictates the mood of the class. Um, and so, you know, the, the teachers are hugely influential for the motivation of the learners, the emotions that the learners feel, the group dynamics generally, the sense of self learners develop. Not only the teacher, but the teacher has a massive impact. So to not understand how this key stakeholder ticks and what they need and what their motivations and emotions are just seemed bizarre. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a whole host of reasons why that has been the case. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of how it started. So then I became more interested in teachers and uh, yeah, maybe there's a little bit of self-directed interest here that I became interested in teachers. <laughs> And I wanted to understand what makes teachers either flourish or flounder in the classroom in their professional roles. Yeah, yeah. So what are some of the reasons why this research area really hasn't um, been developed that much? Um, I think there's a few reasons. I mean, the whole learner-centered movement, which was quite right in drawing attention to learner needs and individuality and processes of differentiation and so on, was really important. But I think it had a kind of knock-on effect that was this excessive focus on the learner. There was almost a complete neglect of the teacher. Hmm. Um, and, you know, to say anything should be teacher-centered was sort of considered, you know, a bad word and you know, yeah. not the way to go. Whereas, I, you know, I think that might have had a sort of, it's just one of those pendulum effects that perhaps has been sort of a bit negative. But um, we're doing quite a lot of research with my team here in Graz at the moment, looking at various at teachers in various roles and various situations. And one of the things we, of course, discover, and, and it's obvious really, is teachers are incredibly busy people. Mm-hmm. So they are not overly willing or able to take part in research. Yeah. So I think there are also very pragmatic reasons why uh, teacher research is incredible. We're we finding it ourselves is incredibly difficult because teachers are incredibly busy people. They have way too much to do, not enough time to do it. Um, very often, too little support, um, too little recognition of how much of mm-hmm. their time is being spent on all kinds of things. And so it's very hard for them to then say, oh, yeah, okay, we'll come and spend an hour or two talking to you for research purposes. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think there's possibly theoretical reasons in the field, but also very pragmatic reasons. Sure, sure, yeah. And we need to work toward fixing those problems, right? (laughs) We're trying. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, and thank you already for the work that you and your team are doing. This is is very important. Um, So... Being an effective language teacher means um, managing your time, right, and taking care of yourself. So what are some of these um, secrets to (laughs) teacher well-being? What are some sustainable steps that we can take to make sure that we, you know, are in the best frame of mind to, to support our students in the best way? Well, to be fair, I did confess to you before I came on air that I'm either the best or the worst person to talk about this. I find it so difficult myself. So I, I know that, you know, it's really easy to talk about. It's very, very difficult to make changes to your lifestyle to, to walk the talk. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't suggest for anybody that there's a quick fix to this. But I think the very, very first step that we have to do as a profession and as a field, and great credit to you guys at Cornell for inviting me to talk about this, is we have to recognize that this is an issue. 
Yeah. And we have to say that, you know, looking after teacher well-being is not something that we should be feeling guilty about. It's mm-hmm. not something we should feel is a, a luxury extra. It is absolute foundation of good practice and good management. So we, we, the first thing that has to happen is institutions need to be taking steps to say, you know what, looking after our teachers is pretty important. It's important not only for the teachers themselves, but the teachers will teach better, more effectively, more creatively, they will enjoy their job more and do a better mm-hmm. job if they're in the right place. Yeah, okay. And so if, if systemic changes can take place to support teachers, that's a big step in the right direction. And for teachers on an individual level, teachers tend to be very other-oriented um, by nature. Hmm. You know, part of the profession is you're very much focusing on other people, focusing yeah. on their needs. And, you know, that's not to say that focusing on learner needs is not a priority. It will always be the main focus of our jobs. But um, teachers have to feel free and feel that it's okay to say, you know what, I'm going to be a little bit selfish and look after myself here. I need time for myself. I need time. I, I need to make my own well-being a priority. So I think maybe getting rid of that kind of guilty conscience that, you know, oh, I, you know, I've not got time. Yeah. You know, I think we have to, we, we have to just knock that on the head and we have to be able to talk about well-being um, as, as a serious part of our jobs. That it's, you know, it's okay to talk about that. It's not fluffy. It's not fluffy mm-hmm. extra, but, you know, it's, it's a key part of what makes us function to the best of our abilities. Yeah, absolutely. When I do think, um, I know that me personally, I certainly struggle with with work-life balance and time and there's always something that you can do, right? I mean, the work as a as an educator just never stops. Um, I think that's part of one of one of the big problems. I think that there's there's two things. Firstly, teachers love what they do usually. Yeah. you know, I don't want to be painting a very negative picture. Teachers give a lot of themselves to their careers because they get a lot out of it. So we gain a lot of positivity and a lot of uh, positive experience, motivation from, from what we do. So we have to balance off the fact that teachers are not always unhappy when they're working hard because very often sure. they enjoy and get a lot of pleasure from what they do. But um, this notion of balance, and, and you know, I, I talked a little bit in the talk about that today, balance is a sort of very difficult notion. It implies that there's some magic level, some magic ratio, and there's mm-hmm. not. You know, it's, it's, um, but we all have work and non-work that we've got to somehow kind of synthesize. And we have to be careful that if we become too work-oriented, we become a little bit one-dimensional and it makes us vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So we, we need time away from work. We need to have a little bit of detachment. We need to be doing other things to give our minds time to free up. You know, everything we know about the subconscious is the subconscious works on stuff when we're thinking of different things. That's why sometimes we have these, you know, aha moments because we've allowed our brain to get on and do other stuff. And then it goes, oh, I remember that problem. I can, I can deal with that now. So we, we, we need to create that kind of space in our lives to allow ourselves non-work time to detach, to, to spend time with family, with friends, to do leisure stuff. And then we have to get rid of the idea that when we're not working hard, we're not being efficient. Actually, that time away makes it that much more efficient when we come yeah. back. Are there specific suggestions that you have for simply leaving the office or simply, you know, shutting down your computer and saying, okay, this is it. And now I am going home. Now I am going to spend time with family and friends and taking that time to recharge yeah. Any yeah. tips and tricks? Uh, I, I, everybody's kind of different in what they find useful. But I, what I have found useful is I time box. So that means I set, you know, I, I have, you have to be realistic about how long you think something's going to take. But you mm-hmm. say, I, I have to be finished by, let's say, six o'clock. 
and that's that's you know i've given myself two hours i think it'll probably take about two hours and you rush to finish and you have to finish at six o'clock and amazingly usually it works you get it huh. done in the night because there's this this law called parkinson's law <laughs> <laughs> the idea that work expands to fit the amount of time you make available for it so if you have a whole day to do lesson planning, you will spend a whole day doing lesson planning. If you have an hour to do lesson planning, you'll spend an hour doing lesson planning. So time boxing is is really boxing in segments of time to do things and being quite disciplined about keeping to it. Yeah. And the thing we have to actually also schedule in is we have to schedule in uh, time with family and friends and leisure time. And it has to go in the diary like any other kind of appointment that we take seriously as a commitment. Mm-hmm. And then we have a fighting chance of keeping to it. Literally, we have to schedule free time. We have to schedule time away and, mm-hmm. then, and then do our best to stick to it. Yeah. <laughs> what are some other mechanisms outside of time management to be a healthier individual, which will then translate into being a healthier educator or a healthier person in general? I mean, we, we all know about the, the, the health triangle, so sleep, nutrition, um, and exercise. Mm-hmm. So those are the sort of physical side of things of well-being that needs to be sort of paid attention to. And again, it has to be very careful that we don't drop into very prescriptive shoulds, and then we all start feeling guilty because, you know, we've been eating this or doing this or not doing exercise. But just an awareness and a conscious reflection on the fact that sleep quality and amount of sleep is important. Um, very often when we're very busy, the first thing that we sacrifice is sleep. Yeah. Cut into both ends of the day to try and steal some time. And the more you understand about the importance of sleep and the function it has um, for human functioning, you become more protective of it. So I think it's not about being prescriptive. It's not about saying this, you know, because everybody's different in what they need and how they function to their best. But just a very conscious reflection on what am I doing in these sort of three categories of looking at my sleep quality and time, looking at my nutrition and the kind of uh, what's going in in terms of fuel, mm-hmm. and then get exercise, how much exercise. Exercise, you know, we, we know the notion of embodied mind. Um, we, we are physical beings. Um, we, we have become very sedentary in our, our, our work lives and finding ways to be a little bit more active. And don't get me wrong, I'm not super fit here. I'm the last person. <laughs> Uh, preach to anybody about exercise yeah but, um but just simple things like you know if i'm taking phone calls now i have made it a habit to do it stood up and walking mm. about mm-hmm. and just little things where we try to just put in a little bit more exercise in our day taking the steps not the elevators just becoming conscious of the fact that these things do contribute to how well we function and then the other thing that's been quite powerful for me um so i don't so some of my work has been informed by positive psychology mm-hmm. And one of the things in positive psychology is they've been looking at what they call uh, PPIs, positive psychology interventions. So things that you can do that have an effect on your well-being in terms of positivity. And one of the things that's come out quite strongly in the research, so the research is quite clear that this functions. So there are some out there that function and some that don't function quite so well. And again, it depends on, on whether it is a good fit for you as an individual. Yeah. But one thing that does seem to function is this notion of gratitude practices. Hmm. And it, I, I've actually, I have to confess, um, without making me sound like an old hippie here, but it actually does work for me. So what I tend to do is um, at the end of every day, before I switch the light out and go to bed, I just sit there and take a minute to just reflect on the day and just think about what things am I grateful for? 
Huh. What, you know, what things went well today? What did I enjoy? What was positive about the day? What things am I thankful for? And when I started this a couple of years ago, I had to really think. And now it's become such a habit that I can think of hundreds of things at the end of the day because, huh. you know, there's so many, we're so programmed to look at the negativity and the huh. things that went wrong that sometimes we just get out of the habit of seeing the positive things. Yeah. And we just have to kind of make it a habit again and retrain ourselves. And if we get this gratitude practice, it makes it easier also during the day to see the positive side uh -huh. of it. Uh -huh. it's, not to it's not to deny the negative. You know, th th that's part of life. Life, life is that rich mixture sure. of emotions and experiences. But it's about getting that sense of balance, that sometimes we can get things out of balance by looking so much at the negative, we just forget some of the positive stuff. So making this a practice every day at the end of the day, and it can be things like, you know, I'm, I had this lovely conversation with Angelica. Um, I had a nice meal with a friend at lunchtime. Um, the sun was shining this morning. I didn't bump my car, although I nearly did. But it all went okay. <laughs> you know, things, things that you're grateful that didn't happen. So, and when you become, when you start making that a habit, it just makes life a lot easier to think like that. And when it's the last thing you do at the end of the day, you go to sleep with lovely positive thoughts in mind. Mm -hmm. And that's good for your quality of sleep as well. Yeah. So I think there's that sort of consciously reflection on your physical well-being and then this trying to make it a habit to also see some of the positive things that are already there in your life. Yeah, I like that. I, I actually had a colleague who told me that they keep a gratitude journal and yeah. whenever they're down, you know, they yeah. take this out and they read about all the things over the years or, you know, the last months that yeah. they've been grateful for. And that just puts you immediately in a in a happier frame of mind. It does. And I think for some people, I think the writing down can be very important. I have to admit, I'm kind of too lazy to do that. But if, if I know that I know that for a lot of people, the writing down is quite important. But it is about making ourselves aware of that. There's, a, there's quite a nice thing to do also with, with um, pre-service teachers. Um, mm -hmm. Also for teachers generally is sometimes we get really nice feedback from students. We have really positive experiences or, you know, we do a play with the students or something. And you can keep a positivity portfolio. So you just keep a place or maybe a box and you put photos in or emails. You keep stuff that sort of reminds you of the great parts of your job and the things that have gone really well and the lovely messages that you've had, your know, thank you yeah. card for students and just keeping them in one place. And then, you know, if you are having, you know, motivation does go up and down. We all have dips in our motivation. Mm -hmm. That's just part sure. of life. You know, but maybe if you're just having a dip and you can get out of the box and have a little look and just remind yourself of some of the great things about your job and great experiences you've had, it can just help give you a little bit of a boost again. Yeah. Your, Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, those are all important things for all of us to think about. Um, where can we direct educators to for finding more information, you know, maybe some of the research that you've done or some best practices? And I know that um, locally here at Cornell, we certainly and, and many institutions of higher education have like wellness offices or, or faculty and staff support offices that have very specific services that they do offer in terms of, of well-being. But are there any other resources that you can direct our listeners to? Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're in the process of setting up a center for well-being in language education. So looking oh. at well-being of learners and teachers. So that will eventually, she says, kind of optimistically, <laughs> will, will be available online. But that might be some time before we're doing the The research projects, we're, we're slowly starting to publish on the studies. So we finished two projects and we're in the middle of a huge, big um, three-year funded project at the moment, looking at um, language teachers in Austria and the UK. Um, and all that research is eventually becoming available. Mm -hmm. um, 
I'm also in the process with a colleague of writing a book that's very practical for teacher well-being. And okay. uh, I'll make sure I send a copy to you guys when 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 it's done. Yes, please do. Um, Sorry, I was going to say a useful website I would direct people to as well is um, it's called Greater Good in Action at Berkeley. Okay. And it's based and that has a lot of kinds of activities that are inspired by um, positive psychology principles, but they're all backed up with um, empirical evidence. Wonderful. So there are different things, you know, there's things about compassion, wonder Mm -hmm. or kindness, um, meditation, mindfulness, those kinds of things, all those different types of activities. Also, just for interest for for some of the educators, they're nice things that you can adapt to do with learners as well. Okay, wonderful. Um, Yeah. Yeah, so if, so if they wanted to have a look there, that's a really good place. And it's nice because there's, there's, there's the empirical evidence that shows that these activities work or have yeah. been work. And we'll make sure to link to that in the description of this podcast episode. Um, one other thing real quick. You just mentioned the research that you're doing both in Austria and in the UK. Um, have you found differences in terms of like cultural differences, regional differences with how, how teachers deal with well-being? Yeah, huge. Um, huh. Yeah, and to be honest, um, we expected there to be differences, but they were actually much bigger than we expected. Hmm. Because, um, you know, without giving away too much of our party line here, um, some of the things that we noticed, for example, is the whole structure of entry and exit from the career, support, Mm -hmm. um, expectations, um, appreciation within society. Mm The profession and of teaching generally and yeah. um, that varies wildly and that leads to, to huge differences in how teachers experience it but of course what we've decided or what we have found is useful is we're taking more of an ecological perspective on mm-hmm. the teachers and their well-being so we're looking at how it functions within their classes so you know some classes to teach are more difficult than others sure, and sure. classes are a joy so you know the on the level of the class there are differences but then mm-hmm. if you scale that up one level on the level of the institution itself so we just I mean, in fact, I did an interview with a teacher yesterday um, and she taught at two different schools and the difference in kind of support and the kind of relationships and the kind of um, leadership that she experienced were massively different. Huh. And so it's within the same country, teaching the same subject in the same country, but the two institutions could yeah. not be different. Yeah. But then we notice, of course, there's the subject. So we're looking at different languages. So we have people in the UK teaching um, French, German, Spanish and Mandarin. Mm-hmm. And we've got teachers in Austria primarily teaching English. Mm. And the status of the language also has a massive impact on how teachers are experiencing um, their professional roles. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have the level of the society and the kind of structures in place. So what kind of structures there are for the teacher education programs, um, how easy it is to swap careers. That seems to be quite an interesting sociological factor that's coming mm. out. Um, so, yeah, we, we, there's, there's huge differences. Fascinating. Well, I'll, I'll look forward to seeing more and reading more about this when um, all of your work is completed and written up. <laughs> yes, who knows what my well-being will be like at that stage. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This is a fascinating and, and very, very important topic. So thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much for asking me to come. It's it's been lovely to talk with you. Thanks very much. Next week, we will talk about early language learning, music, and advocacy. Amanda Seawald will join us in the studio. 
Amanda is an instructional coach and expert in multilingual curriculum and instruction. She's also the author and director of Maracas Language Programs, an interactive language learning experience for preschool and elementary age children. Until then, auf Wiederhören! The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or look for Cornell LRC on Facebook and Twitter. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners and do stay tuned for our next episode.